kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 100 of the Anti-Nanny Podcast. Uh, With me, as always, are my lovely, talented, and vivacious co-host, Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you this evening, Miss Jeannie? Wonderful, Miss Jan. Happy 100. Thank you. I'll be saying that to you soon, too. And the best producer, money can't buy. Very. Hi. Well Hi. done on a hundred. Thank Over you. Over a hundred more. Mm. Oh, well, we'll see. Um, before we get started with any of the topics tonight, uh, I'd like to bring on Alex Clark, the legislative director from CASA, yeah. to give us a CASA update. There we go. Can you hear us, Alex? I can hear you. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Um, going pretty good. Um, welcome to the CASA update for January 19th, 2015. What's been going on this week? <laughs> um, well, I just posted up a uh, call to action for Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, we actually mailed that out last week to Maryland residents. Um, that is regarding an indoor use ban. The county is looking at um, child-resistant packaging and a ban on sales to minors, which is really the only redeeming thing about the bill. Um, So I don't have that in front of me right now, but there is a meeting scheduled. I think it's Thursday this week. Um, So if anybody in Maryland, within the sound of my voice, would like to attend that, um, you have to be signed up to speak by 10 a.m. that morning. I think it's the 22nd. Okay. Yes. Um, So that's that's the new bit that we put out this week. Um, There was a hearing in Montana today, uh, which seemed to be kind of interesting. Um, It it sounds like they, I don't know if they tabled it or if they're going to kind of keep it in the committee and add uh, or change some some language. 
Uh, I haven't gotten a full update on that, and I was only able to listen to a little bit of it. Okay. Um, but that was the uh, that really should just be a, a, a ban on sales to minors. Um, okay. But anybody who's not familiar with that, they refer to uh, vapor products as electronic smoking devices, uh, <sighs> which is <laughs> that, that's anti language. <laughs> very, very much, and um, I, I, it, it's it's a mixed bag. You know, it it, it seems like. It's possible the senator that sponsored this really just wanted to get a ban on sales to minors on the books. And sometimes these people just, you know, they look to other states for language. And um, who knows, maybe unfortunately she looked at New Jersey and said, oh, that that seems to be okay, so we'll do that. Um, But then again, you know, maybe they had somebody whispering in their ear. And it really does look like you know it really is just a a ban on sales to minors but you know because they're redefining tobacco product and because Mm -hmm. they're using this this terminology um this is why Kassad in particular you know uh, had voiced opposition um at least to the wording of it Mm -hmm. um so that should be something that is easily fixed Um, yeah if they're amenable (laughs) yeah um and uh, I think last week we updated Indiana to include mm-hmm. an indoor use ban that, that might have come out in the very beginning. Um, this week we're going to be looking at um, there's there's a bill SB 539 in Indiana that uh, deals with licensing, um, which uh, I just was on a call earlier today uh, discussing this issue. Um, won't go into any details about it, but uh, this is something that is popping up uh, in several places. There's already a bill in New York dealing with registration and licensing, which doesn't seem too horrible, actually. Um, so uh, we're, we're sort of trying to formulate a strategy with, with stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I looked briefly at the Oregon legislation. That is the worst piece of legislation. And I thought Hawaii's three bills last year were really bad. I, I thought they were really bad. These are this the Oregon bill is really horrendous. But I think we're going to see a lot of legislation like that creeping in, simply pegging it to smoking so that they can tax it. Yeah. In a lot of states, yeah. Yeah, I have about, I think I've got about half of the, I'm about halfway through with Oregon as far as writing this, the calls to action. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the only way to describe, the, this is new, I, 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 I'm sure that Julie might make me dial it back, but um, I refer to it as a new and exciting term for vapor products, which is inhalant delivery systems. Um, for God's sake. So which, <laughs> oh just, God. there's just no other way to describe that other than it, derogatory. <sighs> it's, it's absolutely derogatory. It's, I don't think it's, it's a, I don't think these bits of legislation are useful. I really think um, with enough opposition, we can really 
force them to change their tunes, but you never know. I mean, look at New Orleans. I, I still don't know what's going to happen there. That's kind of ridiculous, too. I, I had a conversation with somebody who's on the ground in uh, New Orleans yesterday. Um, it sounds like they are... Um, uh, they've organized a, a vapor retailers coalition. Nice. Um, and, uh, there's, there's several issues there with new Orleans. Um, it sounds like, uh, uh heart and lung are, um, <sighs> threatening like. to, to pull conferences. Um, and, uh, there's some other, there's some other issues with, uh, allowing for vape shops to allow vaping in their stores, um, that they're, they're, they, they just don't think creatively about this stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's really not impossible to separate allowing a vape shot to have people using the product in their store. And it's, it's, it's possible to separate that from a cigar bar. Right. It, it's really a matter of just using the right words. Well. Um, so they're concerned about that conflicting with, I think, a grandfather date for cigar bars. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to this guy, I did get the sense that there were a few, uh, more than one council members that, you know, I, either they hadn't really thought this through or they, they were sort of amenable to um, allowing for vaping in stores, but they just didn't quite know how to work the language. Um and of course, you know, I, I'm, I think we'll agree that, you know, the, the smoking ban in general is, is I don't agree with that to begin with. So yeah. um, I, it's, don't uh, I, I should hope that, uh, you know, that stakeholders in, in New Orleans are actually able to mount a formidable opposition. Yeah. Well, I mean, from... Talking to, I call them hybrids. I shouldn't do that. You, you know that I do that. <laughs> because I have a lot of friends who either smoke or who uh, are dual users. And they support, you know, no smoking ban, no vaping ban. And this is the, the first friend um, hybrid dual user I've ever been able to convince to go speak at this legislation. And um, I don't know if that trend is going to continue. Um, I'm kind of hoping at some point we can all find a way to work together. That would be ideal for me. But uh, baby steps. This was the first time I was able to convince one to go speak. So I'm proud of that. Yeah, maybe it's time to promote Carl's blog post from last year. I think he, he had posted something up about, you know, um, I think it was from the, the UK. Uh, there was a, a smokers rights group there that, uh, had actually, um, I guess done more in the way of, of maybe correcting lies or, or, uh, fighting against smoking bans or, you know, actually defending vaping rights. And, well, um, the same can't necessarily be, be said for vape vapors. Um, well, but yeah. you know, we should be paying attention to this stuff because everything that they've done to smokers, they're going to do to vapors. They exactly right. You couldn't get it more right. So yeah, you can yeah. learn a lot from history. 
boy, Alex, I would almost, I would almost say you uh, almost heard my rant on my show before the last show you were on because it was it was pretty epic about that. But um, <laughs> it was it was. I, I'm um, sorry for that, by the way. That's that's okay, Jeannie. That's okay. Um, I think people um, forget where they came from, but you know, um, some of that changes with time um, for some people, and some of it doesn't. Uh, some people really didn't like smoking or they had um, bad health effects from it. I can understand having hard feelings about something that was so hard to quit that did you so much damage. If it did you damage, um, I I can understand having hard feelings about that. But when you, to quote Jeannie Kay, when you talk badly about someone smoking, it doesn't exactly make them warm up to vaping either. So... Yeah, it's it's a fine line. I, I I have to throw my two cents in here. I, I've been thinking about posting this somewhere, but I I just it, it it's never. I don't think it's ever going to go away for me that the secondhand smoke and that stale smoke smell in carpet and upholstery that to me that just that smells like love. I I, I, <laughs> I just it, it fills me with joy. <laughs> You know, um, I've never had that experience, but I will say, um, (laughs) no, I, if the U S government turned around tomorrow and said club cigarettes were legal again, I would have a really hard time continuing vaping. (laughs) I'm not even going to lie about that. So there's always that. That's always, um, at the back of my mind too. Um, Uh, I want to thank you, Alex, for giving us this update. It was yeah. really great. Thank you so much, <laughs> and we'll see. We'll see you next week. Hold on. Hold awesome. On. Yeah. Wait. Wait. Yeah. One yeah. Yeah. Can I? What, can I say something before you leave? Please, yes. Miss Jeannie. To all three of you, thank you very much. Uh, the three of you did a fantastic show. Um, I laid on my couch, and thanks to the mobile link from Jan, I could listen to the show on my phone. Um, it was absolutely wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, Jan, and thank you, Alex, both of you, for what you do with CASA and just what you do for vapors in general. Um, it is much appreciated, and I don't think any of you hear that enough. Thank you, well, Thank you. I'm blushing. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Jeannie. Um, well, Alex, um, I'm going to let you go have dinner and pretend you have a life because i know you're writing calls to action nonstop. so thank I'm, you for i'm gonna go i'm gonna go plop myself on the couch and finish on oregon and re-watch battlestar galactica so Ooh, that sounds like fun <laughs> <laughs> thank cool. you alex so, thanks see you next week I'll see you next week Okay. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> welcome to episode 100 of Auntie Nanny. It's been another really interesting week in the news, which I know people said to me, do you have anything interesting planned? Because you've done 100 episodes, you must have tons of audio to pick from. And now I don't. Uh, deep down inside, I think I'm just a news person. 
groups. So there's always news. Department of Homeland Security Oversight Report. The Department of Homeland Security is a terrifying failure. An extensive, embarrassing, and alarming federal oversight report finds major problems with the Department of Homeland Security, detailing funds spent on spa trips, no plan for a Ebola pandemic, federal guards untrained in weapons screening, incompetent cybersecurity practices and strategies, and little proof that the DHS is doing anything to make us safer. The report's Dear Taxpayer Introduction states, Based upon the available evidence, DHS is not successfully executing any of its five main missions. Many of DHS's programs, in fact, are ineffective and should be reconsidered. One key finding states Department of Homeland Security spent $50 billion over the past 11 years on counterterrorism programs, including Homeland Security grants and other anti-terror initiatives, but the department cannot demonstrate if the nation is more secure as a result. The Edward Snowden revelations have rocked governments, global businesses, and the technological world. Here is our perspective on the still unfolding implications along with IT security and risk management best practices that technology leaders can put to good use. Oh, for God's sake. Um, each assessment of the team's, the DS8DHS team's top five missions, preventing terrorism and improving security screening and managing our borders, enforcing administration and administering our immigration laws, safeguarding and securing cyberspace, and strengthening national preparedness and resilience is a shocking literary of failures and incompetence, corruption and disinterest, characterizing the DHS as ineffective and inefficient program of questionable worth. This week, the president's new cybersecurity initiative specifically names DHS intelligence and information sharing programs. Yet the report states that DHS's intelligence and information sharing programs provide little value. The report says that the DHS is lousy at cybersecurity and stresses that the DHS is a dysfunctional culture, one outlined especially in an ominous section on DHS corruption. It details misspent and wasted money on spa junkets, 99% of chemical fatalities facilities uninspected, a range of cybersecurity failings, and a nation protected by largely untrained government contractors who literally don't know what to do if someone leaves a bomb outside a federal building or pulls out a gun and starts shooting. Another key finding is that the DHS spends more than $700 million annually to lead the federal government's efforts on cybersecurity but struggles to protect itself and cannot protect federal and civilian networks from the most serious of cyber attacks. The report, a review of Department of Homeland Security's missions and performance, spearheaded by the now-resigned Senator Tom Coburn, a member of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee since 2005, also expressed grave concern for the rights of American citizens under the DHS. DHS's leaders must focus on respecting American citizens' constitutional rights and focusing on the proper role of federal government to restore and earn their trust, Senator Coburn explained. This report is a comprehensive overview of oversight conducted over the past decade to measure how well the DHS is achieving its mission, obtaining, operating its programs, spending taxpayer funds, complying with the law, and respecting the boundaries established to limit federal government and protect the rights of law-abiding U.S. citizens. 
The analysis is based upon independent information and evidence as well as oversight conducted by my office and other watchdogs. Over a decade of counterterrorism face plants. The report stated, A review of DHS's counterterrorism and domestic security initiatives raised the serious questions about the value and effectiveness of DHS's programs. For example, the DHS has spent more than half a billion dollars over the last seven years on its program to create standards for and regulate the security of chemical facilities at risk of potential terrorist attacks. But the program has experienced significant problems, and 99% of all chemical facilities that were supposed to be overseen by the program had not been inspected as of June 2014. The DHS apparently failed at counterterrorism across the board. The Obama administration's intelligence sharing programs, a key piece of new cybersecurity legislation the president is said to introduce, are apparently standing failures. Independent reviews, including audits and investigations by watchdogs, show that the DHS intelligence and analysis programs, including its state and local fusion centers and other information sharing programs, are ineffective or providing little value. Their report states, It is not clear that the DHS programs designed to prevent terrorist attacks, including its intelligence information sharing and preparedness grants program are making the nation safer or accomplishing the DHS's stated priority mission. Likewise, the DHS initiatives aimed at improving domestic security from potential terrorist attacks have a history of problems, and there are questions about their effectiveness or utility. DHS's technology initiatives and programs designed to monitor and detect chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear attacks have not been proven to be effective or cost-efficient, and billions of dollars have been spent on these initiatives. Dysfunctional culture of spa trips, shaking bombs, no plans for Ebola. One recommendation the report stresses as important is that Congress must give the Secretary of Homeland Security the authority to lead, manage, and reform the department and change its dysfunctional culture. The misspending of DHS grant funds veers into the territory of ridiculousnesses. Ridiculousness. One 2012 report cited in the Damning DHS Review identified many examples of states and localities making questionable purchases with Homeland Security grant funds. Tulsa, Oklahoma used Urban Area Security Initiative grants to fund <sighs> funding to harden a county jail and purchase a color printer. Columbus, Ohio used DHS grant funds to purchase an underwater robot. UASI funding was also used to pay first responders to attend a five-day spa junket. In the report, they also find out that the DHS lacked a department-wide border security plan until 2014, which appeared after Senator Coburn requested one from the DHS in 2013. The DHS didn't have an outbreak, a plan for the Ebola outbreak either. The American public became acutely aware of the horrific potential of a low-probability, high-impact pandemic or serious health threat during the 2014 outbreak of Ebola in West Africa and the arrival of the disease in the United States. Despite its responsibilities related to pandemics, DHS has only one pandemic plan for pandemic influenza and has not updated it since September 2006. Corruption in the DHS's border security divisions is significant and well-documented. According to the review and in the press, in 2011, the DHS Office of the Inspector General had opened 600 investigations examining CBP employees. 
In 2012, the OIG transferred 370 cases involving CBP and ICE employees to the ICE's internal investigative office due to then acting inspector general concerns that the OIG was unable to manage the workload. A review of DHS documents made available to the committee reveals that the DHS had also identified corruption within its own ranks as a problem that must be overcome. U.S. taxpayers are told by the report that chances are pretty good that the person screening us when we enter federal buildings isn't trained to screen for weapons or bombs, nor are they trained on how they should react if someone pulls a gun and starts shooting. In a 2013 JAO report... One contracting one contract security company that FPS uses reported that 38% of its guards did not receive training to use the X-ray and magnometer screening from FPS, which is the process for screening people for weapons or explosives entering a building, and some officers who did not receive the training were working at screening posts. I can attest to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 2014, the GAO reported that the FPS is still not providing training for how to respond to an active shooter scenario. The following excerpt describes how an untrained federal security guard handled a bomb that they found outside a federal building by shaking it and later leaving it unattended for three weeks. A Department of Homeland Security OIG report issued in August 2012 reviewed an incident at the Patrick B. McKenna Federal Building in Detroit Contract security officers found a bag containing an improvised explosive device outside of the building. The guards bought the bag, which contained a locked safe inside the building. They attempted to determine the contents of the bag by shaking and moving the metal safe inside the bag, which contained the IED, and x-raying the bag. The inspector general reports that the security guards placed the bag and its contents at their security console for a period of 21 days. Not surprisingly, FEMA is still a mess. Similarly, oversight of the more than $38 billion that the Federal Emergency Management Agency has spent on Homeland Security grants, which were originally intended to improve our ability to prevent terrorist attacks, reveals that the DHS has not effectively tracked how these funds are spent, and federal dollars often subsidize routine, and in some cases questionable, expenditures by states, localities, and other groups. For example, over the past eight years, taxpayers have spent more than half a billion dollars on DHS's chemical facilities anti-terrorism standards. Yet, the department has not yet set up an effective chemical security regulatory program or measurably reduced the risk of an attack on our chemical infrastructure. The report also criticized DHS handling of the Boston Marathon bombing, itself described as a major terrorist attack. In the reports and reviews after the attack, the DHS review does not identify actions that the department or its components could have taken to prevent the Boston Marathon bombing attack and provides a few lessons learned or recommendations for how the DHS can play a constructive role in preventing future terrorist attacks. The 12-year assessment of the DHS concludes that the DHS is less focused on preventing attacks like the Boston tragedy and is focused on its mission more on recovering after damage has been done and lives have been lost. The absence of an in-depth discussion in the lessons learned report about what additional roles the DHS could play in preventing future terrorist attacks raises questions about whether counterterrorism, and specifically terrorism prevention, truly is the department's first mission, and whether that mission has transformed into preparing to recover from terrorist attacks. Obama's new security cybersecurity plan, a foundation of DHS hashtag fail. 
the report doubts the DHS cybersecurity programs are doing much, if anything. The Department of Homeland Security is not solely or even chiefly responsible for poor cybersecurity across the federal government. The White House, including the Office of Management and Budget and senior agency leaders, ultimately must hold each agency and its personnel accountable for ensuring that federal networks and information systems are secure. However, evidence creates doubt that the DHS's key programs for improving federal cybersecurity are yielding significant value. The section on cybersecurity is titled, The Department of Homeland Security is Struggling to Execute Its Responsibilities for Cybersecurity, and its strategies and programs are unlikely to protect us from adversaries that pose the greatest cybersecurity threat. The report section on cybersecurity is all bad news, especially for fans of Obama's planned legislative cyber-terrorist attack preventions. The chilling report on the DHS as a whole since its inception is more important than ever. The DHS failings, it reveals, paints the picture of a nation incompetent at protecting its citizens and infrastructure, ill-prepared to lead the world in counterterrorism or cybersecurity. The DHS was loosely thrown together in the days, the 11 days after the September 11th, 2001 incident in New York City. In 2002, the collection of many different federal agencies under the banner of Homeland Security officially became the DHS. The Department of Homeland Security is the result of the largest reorganization of government in more than half a century. The reorganization included the consolidation of components and offices from 22 different agencies to create a unified department focusing on Homeland Security. In 2015, the DHS will report will employ roughly... Jeannie, read it for me. No. <laughs> it's <clears throat> 240,000 people. And spend... Oh, good God. Do I have to read this out loud? And mm-hmm. spend nearly $61 billion with a B. It's the third largest cabinet agency in the government. Since, <clears throat> sorry, since 2003, the department has spent approximately $544 billion in its programs. Totally not a waste there. Congress has assigned DHS to some federal government's most important responsibilities related to securing the nation, including terrorism prevention and preventive security, transportation security, border security, immigration enforcement, cybersecurity, and disaster recovery. Currently, the DHS is in the middle of a funding fight between Republican GOPs and the Obama administration, closely resembling a parental custody battle. Senator Coburn commented, One of the biggest challenges that Secretary Johnson and DHS face is a Congress and its dysfunctional approach to setting priorities for the department. Congress needs to work with the department to refocus its missions on national priorities and give Secretary Johnson the authority to lead and fix the department. Unfortunately, the current spotlight on DHS focuses on the issue of immigration and border security, not the terrifying revelations in Senator Coburn's report. Thank you for reading that for me. It gave me a chance to take a drink. My uh, tongue was starting to stick to the roof of my mouth. <laughs> well, I have a, I have a question. You know, yeah. and I, I, mean, I understand FEMA, okay? But I, I also understand 
I guess maybe it's maybe I don't get FEMA because I'm slightly prepperish, but mm-hmm. I'm not really a prepper. I'm a I live in bumfuck and know <laughs> that there are high likelihoods of getting stuck in this town mm-hmm. or being without power for days or you know I mean well, why is it that something happens and the first thing everybody thinks is the government has to come save me? Because the government and the health nannies have all infantilized people to Be- the point People need to that- stop fucking expecting that. And, and then if we stop <laughs> expecting them to come fucking fix it, which we already know, they're not fucking going to, people. They're not no. going to. A, so- lot of peop- a lot of people count on the government for a lot of help. And and we've talked about this before. Oh, it drives when, me when, insane. Oh, it drives me insane, too. But, you know, I grew up on a farm. You live out in bumfuck Egypt there. So, you know, both of us have experienced times where it didn't matter who you called for help. There was just you. Yeah. I mean, we had a spring flood here one time, Jan. Uh, they had an early spring thaw, and it, it rained for like a week straight. And the rivers had so much ice on top of them that when the water went in, it floated all this ice. And literally every road out of this town was either flooded or the bridge over it was shoved off its base by the ice. We were, we were stuck in this fucking town, Jan, for a week. Yeah, all I can tell Did you, you is... Did you to save us? No. Fucking nobody. Nobody. You had to save yourself. See, the problem is people think that help is on the way. And a lot of times, help isn't on the way. I can remember after Hurricane Charlie, um, it was just us. It was just us helping us and our neighbors helping each other. And you never saw FEMA... You never saw anybody. And we had storm after storm after storm. And for a lot of us, there was just less and less house to live in. And there was nowhere to go. And no one was going to save you but you. So you had to put on your big girl panties and you had to figure your way out. And we did that. And Hurricane Jean, um, my parents, you know, my parents live in Lake Wales six months out of the year. So... Um, there, the one year, um, they got hit with three hurricanes in quick succession and hurricane Jean went up through and turned right around and went right back down where it came from. Um, so, I mean, they got that one twice. Mm -hmm. Now my dad, they were home. My dad packed up his truck and all of his shit and drove down there to help the people in the, the community they live in clean up yeah and get because things he was down there for two weeks before they saw a power company yeah you know help is not always on the way so when we talk about things like maybe putting aside some flour rice or you know easily cookable foods that you can cook on a grill or over an open flame you know even in your backyard we're not doing that to say, you know, we're crazy people going on the run from the government. Here's our, you know, 
No, it's Here's not that. It's bug out bags. It has nothing to do with that. To care yourself while you're waiting for this help. That's probably not going to come. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're in New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans didn't get help. Those, I mean, they did, but a lot of people helped themselves. And please, let's not forget what happened with other agencies that are quote unquote famous for helping, and not even agencies, charities. Let's not forget the hurricane that happened in New York City, where the people who did the most good and helped the most were, you know, the Occupy people, and the Red Cross didn't want to work with them. I don't give a fuck who wants to help my neighbor. At, the, at this point, it doesn't matter when there is nothing and there's no food and there's no toiletries and there's no power and there's nowhere to go. It doesn't matter who wants to help my neighbor's. Um, and it shouldn't matter to agencies that are supposed to provide aid. And every investigation of the Red Cross shows that they send out empty trucks to all these horrible disaster hit areas every time something happens so that they get some play in the press and they do nothing. Not only won't the federal government help you, neither will these fucking charities. So you really better wake up and invest in you. Put money aside to take care of you and your family because no one else is going to. In the end, you are all you have to depend on. Even if the government had the resources, there's no way they could help everyone. So think of it as being less of a burden on yourself being a taxpayer but also on, say, your neighbors or the guy down the street who really needs help getting it. You know, you can't help others unless you can take care of yourself either. So it really is just that simple. Am I wrong? No, not at all. Not, not even remotely. Um, people really, really, really need to understand personal accountability um, and that goes not just for the things that you do wrong but I mean personal accountability to me stems from being able to take care of yourself I mean I am basically a useless person I mean my hands Jan you know you know my hands mm -hmm. but I have made sure that something is there if we meaning me and my family need it you know, no matter no matter who you are or what situation you're in, you know, Jan, you and I both live on pennies compared to other people. Yeah. And and it's because we have to. But mm -hmm. even we can figure out a way to do something yeah. to ensure our families are taken care of. Well, I mean, and and that's the thing. People say, you know, homesteading or prepping, all those people are weird. That's not weird. It's not weird if you live in a place where there are snowstorms where you cannot literally get out of your house for weeks at a time. Or places that hurricanes hit. Or places that tornadoes hit. You know, it's not weird to these people to have storm cellars and cellars full of supplies. I don't think any of us are advocating that. I mean, I can't personally afford that, but I do what I can with what I have to lay in stuff that will 
be healthy and nutritious and edible and still keep us alive if something bad happens because I've lived through something bad. I know what that's like. I've lived through blizzards. I've lived through hurricanes. During Hurricane Charlie, a tornado came down the, the back way of my house and slammed into my fucking house. So I've lived through a hurricane and a tornado. Um, you know, in that order. And it, it's not fun. <laughs> I just, I don't understand the mentality of just let me go about my day-to-day drudgery here, take some of my paycheck, and come save me when I need it. Well, this news that you read every week is real shit and should make people wake up to the fact that they're not. They're not fucking going to be there when you need them. So, you know what? Tell them you want to keep your money and do it for your damn self. Stop waiting for somebody else to do it for you. Yeah. Um, for all the people who believe health is, help is on the way, I'm going to refer you to, please look at New Orleans right now. Look at who's building the houses. Why the fuck is Brad Pitt building the houses down there? It's just a question, right? No one is going to save you but you. And that, that isn't always attainable for some people. I, I understand that. Some people really need the help. But if you can, then whatever resources that might be spent on you could be spent on that person who actually does need the help. Okay. Um, all right. Let's see. Because it's been such a normal week. I know this is episode 100, and Barry tells me I'm legally required to tell you that the phones are on. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's that. Um, But the news doesn't really change all that much. And uh, I'm a news junkie, so we're going to keep moving forward with the news. Um, Okay. Yep. I, you know what I forgot to mention? Today is Martin Luther King Day. Okay? It's also the birthday of Lysander Spooner, who's um, a forward-thinking man and a good man and a supporter of people's labor rights. And he's also someone that the government would label an anarchist. And speaking of anarchists, security is not a crime unless you're an anarchist. Rise Up, a tech collective that provides security-minded communications to activists worldwide, sounded the alarm last month when a judge in Spain stated that use of their email service is a practice he believes associated with terrorism. Very. Javier Gomez Bermudez is a judge of... uh, Audiencia Nacional. A special high court in Spain that deals with serious crimes such as terrorism and genocide. According to press reports, he ordered arrest warrants that were carried out on December 16th against alleged members of an anarchist group. The arrests were part of Operation Pandora, a coordinated campaign against, quote, anarchist activity that has been called an attempt to criminalize anarchist social movements. The police seized books, cell phones, and computers and arrested 11 activists. Few details are known about the situation since the judge has declared the case a secret. 
at least one lawmaker, David Compagnon, I think I got that one right, has speculated that the raids are a stunt to garner support for Spain's recently approved gag law. The new law severely restricts demonstrators setting huge fines for activities such as insulting police officers, 600 euro, burning a national flag up to 30,000 euro, or demonstrating outside parliament buildings or key installations up to 600,000 euro. Considering the provisions of the law, that's, that's okay. Considering the provisions of the law, it's no surprise that many see the raid conducted against a group with political ideas that the government appears to find threatening as connected. In a statement, Rise Up noted, four of the detainees have been released, but seven have been jailed pending trial. The reasons given by the judge for their continued detention include possession of certain books, the production of publications and forms of communication, and the fact that the defendants used emails with extreme extreme security measures such as the Rise Up server. It's unclear exactly what the judge means by extreme security measures. As Rise Up points out, many of the extreme security measures used by Rise Up are common best practices for online security. It seems the inherent assumption behind a judge's decision is that using services that follow best practices for online security should be considered suspicious. This clearly runs contrary to the presumption of innocence, a core requirement of international human rights law. But what's more, using services with strong security is how individuals can exercise their right to privacy and expression in the digital age while staying safe. Every new data breach and security disaster reminds us of this. Calling the desire to be safe online extreme is incredibly disturbing, but it's hardly surprising. During the crypto wars of the 1990s, the U.S. government propagated the idea that strong encryption should be treated like a weapon. That may be because strong security makes it harder for agencies like the NSA to brazenly surveil everyone, and it makes it harder to repress groups with political ideas that threaten the status quo. There's no question that anarchists fall into that category, and it's perhaps that issue that has the Spanish government concerned. In its statement, Rise Up explains that it has an obligation to protect the privacy of its users and is not willing to allow illegal backdoors or sell our users' data to third parties. There's strong evidence that the NSA has ensured that backdoors are built into many products and services. Companies and groups such as Rise Up want to provide users with reliable, secure network services even when, in fact especially when, dealing with requests from law enforcement and lawyers to hand over private user information and logs. They have developed strong policies to protect themselves from legal liability, but more important to protect the safety and privacy of their users. The need for that privacy and security cannot be overstated. In his landmark report to the 23rd section of the... Human Rights Council for the UN Free Speech Watchdog, I hate the UN, Frank LaRue made clear that secure communications are critical for an open society. LaRue stated, individuals should be free to use whichever technology they use to secure their communications, and states should not interfere with the use of encryption technologies. Without adequate, without adequate protection to privacy and security, and anonymity of communications. Why can't I scroll down? Um, and anonymity of communications. Where am I? Uh, no one can be sure that his or her private communications are not under a state scrutiny. 
Privacy is an essential feature of a free society. Alongside the gag law, repressing private, secure communications sends a distressing signal about the Spanish government's intentions. But there is still time for the courts to correct the decision. If the reason these activists are being held is truly their perfectly reasonable and common decision to secure their own communications, they should be released now. Thoughts? Well, the Spanish government has a history of being a bit crazy, don't they? <laughs> um, I remember that they've had uh, they've had dictators in charge not that long ago in Spain. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's not a great it's a great country to visit. Uh, <laughs> I know lots of Spanish people that have moved away mm-hmm. places like the UK. They've come here because yeah, it's just crazy over there. Um, They've also obviously got their small terrorism problem. <laughs> well, it's little, and I and I get that, you know. I I get that, but here's the thing: this isn't this isn't one of them things where you know, well, it's a slippery slope can be turned the wrong way because this really is pretty much a slippery slope they did not have these people um, under watch because of blatantly terroristic things okay and something like this goes unchecked that's where the whole slippery slope does start to slide in here because could I be considered a terrorist I speak out against the government I own firearms. I stockpile food. So, you know, could some twisted letter of the law call me a terrorist when I am fucking most clearly not a terrorist? (laughs) Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the problem I have with all of this. They will take something and make it fit the shoe that they want to put on that foot. See, that's the problem in Spain. Uh, they've got the problem with the Basques in the north. And literally, to be considered a terrorist, you just need to come from a village up in the northern areas. That's it. That's all. You're all Basques. You're all terrorists. And that's how a lot of the people in the south of Spain think. Which is just... Because they've been fighting the Basques for, well, uh, how long has Spain been around? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. But, well, yeah. and... And I can kind of understand that. It was kind of like the joke. I think I made the joke to you last week on the air when I said, um, right, and in Ireland are the Protestants and Catholics still throwing rocks at each other. And I think you said to me only on the weekends. Yeah. Um, There is a history of that, but just following best practices to ensure that your communication is not intercepted is it's ridiculous and it, it's more than a slippery slope and and we'll get to that in a it's little a bit dark too hole. yeah yeah it it it's it's a big it's it's a big bowl that um let's just say it starts in spain but it doesn't end there um in fact let's go down here David Cameron 
If the government can't snoop on it, you shouldn't be allowed to use it. British Prime Minister David Cameron called for a ban on messaging services that the government can't snoop on. Are we really going to allow a means of communication which it simply isn't possible to read, Cameron asked Monday. My answer to that question is no, we must not. Apps such as Apple, iMessage, Microsoft, Skype, Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, Hangouts, and Snapchat encrypt customers' communications. That means in many circumstances, law enforcement cannot accesses, access people's messaging data even without a warrant or, or even with a warrant or subpoena. Cameron is running for re-election in May. If elected, Cameron said his parliament would draft a new law that would require internet service providers and wireless companies to provide the government with more information about what their customers do online. If they refuse, those services would be outlawed. At a speech in Nottingham, Cameron said he believes the UK government must have the right legal framework to enable us to intercept the communications of potential terrorists. Which begs the question that make you a potential terrorist or me? He noted that the government already has access to telephone data, including where, uh, where and when a call takes place. But Cameron said the British government lacks the ability to trace communications when people use more modern methods through the Internet. Cameron said the new legislation will come in the name of security. In light of the terror attacks on Paris, he said, new legislation is appropriate. The Paris attacks demonstrated the scale of the threat and the fact that we need robust powers to keep our people safe, Cameron said. If I am Prime Minister, I will make sure we do not allow terrorists safe space to communicate with each other. Bullshit. Terrorists are out there meeting face-to-face and talking. I really believe that. I'm sorry. Governments and Internet companies have been sparring over customer data for years. But it's typically totalitarian governments that ban companies that refuse to fork over customer communications. In 2010, India said it would block BlackBerry services unless the company made customers' messages available to the government. BlackBerry settled the dispute by agreeing to give the Indian government access to lawful, lawful access to secured data. China, Saudi Arabia, and other countries have also made similar demands on messaging services. Still, the debate has extended to Western countries as well, as criminals increasingly use encrypted communication services to communicate with one another. Other European governments, in addition to the UK, are also calling on internet service providers and companies that operate online to provide more information about their customers. Apple and Google's decisions to encrypt customer cell phones have angered U.S. law enforcement as well. In when I say it's like a bowl that kind of goes over everything, it really does. Well, Cameron's bit off a lot more eating chew with that because to bring in the laws that he says he wants to, he's going to have to write huge parts of other laws <laughs> that protect privacy. Because uh, a lot of them you can't just overwrite by going, oh, it's national security. Uh, that's not the way British law works. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if... They're unlikely to get in straight anyway. It's probably going to be another shared parliament. Uh, so, oh. he's probably not going to get to do it anyway. Well, Although, you know, they're we already have... doing it, and we know they're <laughs> already doing it. So, I know. yeah. 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 Um, 
and when I talk about that and I say it's a big bowl that goes over everywhere, Obama sides with Cameron in encryption fight. President Barack Obama said Friday that police and spies should not be locked out of encrypted smartphones and messaging apps, taking his first public stance in a simmering battle over private communications in the digital age. Apple, Google, and Facebook have introduced encrypted products in the past half year that companies say they could not unscramble even if faced with a search warrant. That's prompted vocal complaints from spy chiefs, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and this week, Prime Minister David Cameron. Obama's comments came after two days of meetings with Cameron and with the Prime Minister at his side, quote, If we find evidence of a terrorist plot, and despite having a phone number, despite having a social media address or email address, we can't penetrate that, there's a problem, Obama said. No, there's not a fucking problem. Do good old-fashioned investigative work. That's what you used to do. He said he believes Silicon Valley companies also want to solve the problem. Quote, they're patriots, unquote. In the U.S., governments have long been able to access the contents of electronic communication, including phone calls, consumer email, and social media, typically with warrants, through wiretaps, and from technology companies themselves. But the law that governs these practices is dated and doesn't mandate tech firms incorporate such features into modern apps. In the post-Edward Snowden era, many technology firms have turned encryption and zero knowledge into marketing buzzwords. The president on Friday argued there must be a technical way to keep information private, but ensure police and spies can listen in when a court approves. The Clinton administration fought and lost a similar battle during the 1990s when it pushed for a clipper chip that would allow the government to decrypt scrambled messages. There's a notable shift for the president. He sounds more like Jim Comey than anything else the White House has said in the past couple of months, said Stuart Baker, former general counsel at the NSA, referring to the FBI director who has criticized the tech company's new encryption policies. Security experts have long argued such systems would hobble many anti-hacking tools, leaving computers exposed. For instance, if an encryption algorithm has a master key, it is inherently weaker because it's possible for an outsider to steal that master key and crack the code. Obama must now choose between competing priorities, the security of private information or the ability of law enforcement to gather intelligence, said Christopher Seboygan, principal technologist at the American Civil Liberties Union. Earlier in his remarks Friday, the president talked about new efforts by Britain and the U.S. to fight hackers attacking private sector companies. How in the same speech can you talk about taking steps to improve cybersecurity and complain about encryption, Seboygan said. Baker, the former NSA lawyer, called that argument, quote, a red herring. We expect companies to be able to help with this, he said. That doesn't mean that you always have to write bad cryptography. Always have to write bad cryptography. But sometimes you have to. Just sometimes. Only for certain people. When? Just on Wednesdays and holidays and all through May. (laughs) You know, it really is. Well, if you're the government, you're allowed to do what you want. Uh, And everybody else has to put in loopholes yeah so <laughs> okay but this argument's gonna rage for years because oh, the it, the software engineers and hardware engineers say st- stay quite ahead of the security agencies <laughs> on most of this stuff <sighs> Jeannie do you want to read this one 
Sure. Throwing cans at an armed intruder. Smart idea or a poor excuse for not protecting our children. (laughs) Oh, Valley, Alabama. When W.F. Burns Middle School has just taken one gigantic leap into the realm of brain death. Oh, I agree with that. They have actually sent out letters to parents requesting canned food items be sent to the school students to be used as potential weapons in the event of a possible school shooting. The letter reads, Dear parents and guardians, we are dedicated to educating and keeping our children safe at school. As a result of school shootings throughout the United States and discussing with law enforcement on the best procedure to follow to keep our students safe, we are enhancing our procedure for intruders. The procedure will be the same as we have done in the past with the addition of arming our students with a canned food item. We realize at first this may seem odd. However, it is a practice that would catch an intruder off guard. The canned food item could stun the intruder or even knock him out until the police arrive. The canned food item will give students a sense of empowerment to protect themselves and will make them feel secure in case an intruder enters their classroom. This procedure is being used in other schools in our area and in the United States. Please view the following websites listed below for more information on this procedure. Very, will you put those links in the chat, please? I'm, I'm actually yeah. <laughs> morons. We are asking each student to bring an eight ounce canned food item, corn, beans, peas, etc., to use in case an intruder enters their classroom. We hope the canned food items will never be used or needed, but it is best to be prepared. At the end of the school year, the cans will be donated to the food closet. Thank you for your support in helping us keep our children safe at school. Sincerely, Priscilla B. Holly, Principal. Donna M. Bell, Assistant Principal. Both of whom are stupid bitches. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get this straight. The school is asking the parents to arm their children at school with canned food items in the hopes that a 13-year-old child can accurately chuck it at the shooter's head. I've seen a lot of stupidity in my life, but this one is the icing on the cake. Nolan Ryan would have struggled to knock out an attacker from a seated position with a soup can. By the way, if you don't know who Nolan Ryan is, (laughs) he is, yeah, the Hall of Fame pitcher um, for the Texas Rangers. The man had a 93 mile an hour fastball. Just for some perspective here, folks. Uh, Let alone your child or your children being able to do it. The only thing a flying soup can is going to do is piss the shooter off and make your child the next target. Plus, this procedure raises many questions. What if the parents don't have an 8-ounce can? What if they send in a 12-ounce can? Is that an assault can? Should it be registered first? Will the students be required to keep their cans safely locked up until needed? And most importantly, before the cans are donated to the food closet at the end of the year, will they be properly disarmed first? The school district should be embarrassed and ashamed of themselves. Yeah, fucking think. (laughs) They need to issue an immediate retraction of their soup can request complete with an apology to parents within the district and explore avenues that will actually protect our children. Campbell's soup may be good food, but it is a horrible weapon. 
The school's contact information is below. W.F. Burns Middle School, 292 Johnson Street, Valley, Alabama, 36854. Their telephone number, in case you would like to call these fucking morons, <laughs> is area code 334 oh, I'm sorry. Scratch that. Repeat. Area code 334-756-3567. There are also some web links that Jan is throwing in the chat as we speak. <laughs> Principal Holly's email is H-O-L-L-E-Y-P-P <laughs> at C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S-K-1-2 dot O-R-G. The lovely assistant principal... Email address is B-E-L-L-D-O at C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S-K-1-2 dot O-R-G. At some point, Alex... Oh, never mind. That's something else. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I was just on a rant, so I was just going to keep reading. Um, yeah, But by the way, guys, that thing I started reading, fucked up on, was that Alex was going to be joining us at the beginning of the show for a Casa update, which you've already heard. So, yeah, I'm an idiot. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What so, the fuck? Cans versus guns. That, that works really well. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> that plus the fact, yeah, to throw the can, your natural instinct would be to stand up to throw it. So at which now, point when, the guy notices you've stood up and they're going to throw something at him. Yeah, and you know <laughs> we don't we don't want fit kids fighting in school. We don't. We but we do know that it happens. Okay, it happens. That's the other thing. Would this and lead to schools, schools where kids are pelting each other to death with cans? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. What happens, you know, I mean, your kid gets in a fight with a bully at school and, and they think that they're outnumbered and they're outgunned. You know, I mean, there's one thing, kids throwing punches at each other, okay? Parents are getting fucking sued for that shit already. Can you imagine the lawsuit when when the little kid, you know, the little skinny, geeky kid that's going to grow up to be a millionaire and everybody's going to be jealous of but isn't right now? And he takes this can and because it's a self-defense weapon because that's what the fucking idiots at school told him. And he smacks some guy in the side of the head and puts him in a coma and the parents sue and this kid ends up in, in juvenile delinquency and instead of being the next billionaire of the world that can solve world hunger and cause world peace, he ends up in juvie and a drug dealer on the fucking street because of the criminal record he got because you told him to defend himself with a fucking can of soup. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew I knew you would like that one, Janie. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love, right? Yeah. People who work in self-defense will tell you one of the easiest and simplest ways to distract somebody that's going to be attacking you isn't to have a weapon, right? All you need is a really, really bright torch. Fire it straight at their eyes and run like a bastard. <laughs> yeah, because LED flashlights are really small, really bright, and... and yeah, you can get 10,000 lumen flashlights. Yeah, You'll well, blind no, them yeah, for minutes. Yeah, we have one of them, but that thing, I'll tell you what, I bought my husband one of them, Barry. Uh-huh. I bought my husband one of them because it took 18650 batteries. Yep. And the reason I did so was my husband had asked me one day, how many of those 18650 batteries did I think I needed? <laughs> because I had a bunch. We won't put a number to the bunch but i had a bunch so to solve that problem 
I bought my husband a rechargeable flashlight for Christmas that took 18650 batteries, and he now can no longer bitch about how many 18650 battery cells I happen to own. So, but, but he probably does light up half the county when he uses it. Yeah, that 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 thing is huge and heavy. It, it, I'm telling you what, do, don't you remember the, the outrage when, when all the people wanted the police to have to stop carrying mag lights, Jen? Mm-hmm. You remember that? <laughs> because they were considered a deadly weapon? Well, my, hun- <laughs> my husband's 10,000 lumen uh, 18650-cell flashlight, I promise you, that son of a bitch could kill somebody. Oh, if, yeah. I, if I was swinging I'd, that, even with my hands, I could kill somebody. You don't even need to hit them. You can... Go close to their face and light it up and they'll get sunburn in seconds. <laughs> I know, but the chance of your child, you know, causing severe harm on another student um, with a, the little LED one that can blind them too is is a lot lower. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I've got a 1000 lumen 18650 powered torch. It's only one battery. But yeah, when I went to Vape Fest UK, I was camping. And that, with a diffuser on it, could light up half the campground. Because <laughs> the beam goes out to 200 metres. <laughs> and that's just one battery, so yeah, that's only a thousand lumens, and you that'll know, blind somebody. We, how about we let the children be children? You know, considering all these dumb fucks are all oh, save the children. How about we just let the children be the poor little defenseless things that you want them to be any other fucking time, and train the people, the the grown ass adults in this building, how to protect them when they're responsible for them. Well, no, how that about that? How you know what would be nifty? I, I think all the signs in front of schools that say this is a gun-free zone probably need to be taken down. Because if you don't, you don't know who's armed. It really does make for a nice, polite society. People are really nice here. Concealed <laughs> carry is big here. Yeah. And there there are places here where, I mean, I don't live in them, but there are places that are a little more rural here um, where, like, the really rich people carry their fucking shotguns in public. Oh, yeah, yeah it's nothing. It's, I mean, they're still here, Jan, people that ride around with a gun rack in the back window of their pickup truck. I mean, you know, come on. But yeah, I'm, I am a staunch supporter of open carry. More so even than concealed carry. I'm a staunch supporter of open carry. Because uh, when you look around and 40% of the people walking down the street have got a gun on their hip, you best fucking keep your nose in your own damn business. Don't fuck with anybody and behave your damn self. You know, I know there was like something recently that went around that said that all of the gun statistics are wrong. Uh, you know, maybe, but when when you're depending on the police, when seconds count, they're minutes away. And I am not being sarcastic when I say this. So having someone trained and screened to, you know, not be a psychopath in school and really well trained in how to deal with a shooter situation would be a much more effective tool than expecting some poor kid to stand up and be fodder. Gun, you know, fodder for... Yes, ma'am. Tell your kids to... Tell your, you know, your 10 and 12-year-olds to duck and cover. 
it it really is um really is stupid. That was one of the more stupid things I read last week. I have a one of my sisters is um an administrator at a school in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And um they had voluntary armed shooter training. And uh a lot of them volunteered. And I, my only thing is, why didn't all of them volunteer? You're an educator because you want to teach children and you want to, you know, I mean, you are responsible for them when they're in your care. If I'm responsible for my children when they're in my home, you're fucking responsible for them when they're in your school. That's the job you signed up for, asshole. Why didn't they all sign up? Why was it voluntary? I guarantee you, every fucking one of them got paid a damn fine sum of money to take this training. Right. Well, I mean, teachers, teachers don't do anything for free. I mean, <laughs> not anymore. There are a few, but yeah, no, uh-uh, no, 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 no. They did get free. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before before I get to the free range kid story, which. Jeannie was really happy about that one. I, I know because I see I, I see notes in the margin. Um, yeah, one of the things I said I was going to talk about was the CIA investigated itself. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it, surprisingly, it found itself not guilty. Really? Um, I know. Shocking. That that's how it should be. If you commit a crime, you should be able to investigate yourself and decide your own punishment because that's completely fair and the way the world should work. Bastards. It makes perfect sense. Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. You know, there's been an investigation. We've been cleared of all charges. But you investigated you. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. The five officers involved in the CIA monitoring of computers Senate staffers used while probing the intelligence agency's torture program acted in good faith and committed no wrongdoing. That's according to a Wednesday report from an accountability board in which three of its five members were CIA officials. The review board concluded there was simply a misunderstanding that the CIA believed it could search computers that were used, being used by staffers of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. National security was at stake, too. The board determined that while an informal understanding existed that the SSCI work product should be protected, no common understanding existed about the roles and responsibilities in the case of a suspected security incident, according to its highly redacted report. Can somebody get the highly redacted PDF in the chat? Released Wednesday. The review said the CIA's position was that it had obligations under the National Security Act and a legal duty to scour the computers for, quote, the presence of agency documents to which SSCI staffers should not have access. Senator Dianne Feinstein, that fucking bitch, chaired the Intelligence Committee last year when the breaches occurred, and the politician said she was, quote, disappointed that no one at the CIA will be held accountable. Yeah, right. Feinstein said the decision was made to search committee computers, and someone should be found responsible for those actions. 
During an impassioned March speech on the Senate floor, she said, fucking hate her, the CIA search may have violated the Fourth Amendment, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as well as Executive Order 12333, which prohibits the CIA from conducting domestic searches or surveillance. At the time, Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont called the snooping likely criminal conduct. It's funny how it only bothers them when it happens to them. Uh-huh. The Intelligence Committee was investigating the CIA's torture program and needed access to CIA documents. The agency supplied staffers access to millions of sensitive documents via its RDNI net system, which could only be used at a secure location in Northern Virginia. The CIA created what the report called electronic partitions or firewalls to offer some protection of the staffers' work product. But the CIA got wind that perhaps staffers had seen the CIA's own internal review of its interrogation and detention practices. That review was off limits to the Intelligence Committee staffers. The CIA searched the staffers' computers, even reading email, looking to see if they had accessed the internal review and whether they did so via a security breach. The report said the CIA was investigating a quote-unquote leaker who may have provided the internal review and other unauthorized documents, such as, quote, weekly case reports. The agency, after reviewing computers, found a misconfiguration of the RDNI search tool granted the staffers unauthorized access, according to the report. The CIA found a staffer directly navigated to the file path containing unauthorized documents and copied them to another SSCI accessible location. Meanwhile, the Senate finally released its report last month about its investigation into CIA torture practices of terror suspects. The report noted CIA brutality, saying the agency exaggerated how effective its methods were. The review board included former White House co-counsel Robert Bauer, former Senator um, former Senator Evan Beya, and three senior CIA officials. The report did not name. But it's nice how they can investigate themselves. That's that's possibly the best part of the whole thing. And, and so. I find it absolutely hysterical that that bitch has a problem. Sorry. That's a, that's a catchy tune. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. That was a, a little musical interlude. My stereo set itself off. I don't know why. <laughs> I was busy looking at all the computer controls and I'm like, no, that isn't the computer speakers making that noise. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it was, you know people are used to hearing the Stingray song, which (laughs) (laughs) this was just a little different from that, which is good. But yeah, I find it hysterically funny that the dumbass, uh, you know, that wonderfully intelligent Feinstein bitch um, (laughs) has a problem with this. She doesn't mind when your Fourth Amendment rights are violated on a daily basis. She's fine with that. Maybe, you know what, maybe all of those people that were really offended should should talk to Lois Lerner because <laughs> that bitch knows how to hide her shit. <laughs> mm. Very true. But you notice even that story, there's another little bit 
snippets in there of how incompetent they are at protecting their own files. Yeah, I mean, what exactly are they putting all this stuff on? Why do they need to hide it? From other members of the government? That's my question. Because the CIA mandate says, fuck you, everybody, you don't need to know what we're doing? Because paranoia, I think you'll find, basically. No. Why would anybody be paranoid? Everything's fine. Um, yeah. It's just completely messed up. Completely messed up. The new CISPA bill is literally exactly the same as the last one. It's a shock, I know. The definition... (laughs) No, I know. The definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That's a cliche, but politicians often follow the horriest roads to power and attempting to enact change by doing the same thing repeatedly is one of them. When word broke last week that the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, the twice-defeated bill known as CISPA, was being re-revived for a second time by Representative Dutch... What the... Where the who named this bastard? I'm sorry. Ruppersberger. Uh-huh. From Maryland. It wasn't clear if the zombie legislation would be updated to address the myriad of concerns with previous versions. We come through the full text of the bill and nope, it's exactly the same. Word for word, overly broad data snooping power, granted word. The reintroduced CISPA, H.R. 234, is identical to H.R. 624, the CISPA bill that passed the House in 2013 and stalled out in the Senate. (sighs) Never mind that the Senate already refused to vote on an identical bill. Perhaps there is some unspoken Beetlejuice rule among congressmen where Ruppersberger is hoping to invoke a vote by saying the same damn thing three times. Like the Patriot Act, which can massively broad powers in response to security threats, CISPA employs vague language to grant the government an enormous amount of a wiggle room when it comes to justifying privacy violations. To recap it for you, under CISPA, no warrants or subpoenas are required for collecting and sharing personal data as long as the action falls under the so broad as to be essentially meaningless umbrella of, quote, to protect the national security of the United States. The data siphoned and disseminated by governments would be exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. CISPA's information sharing goal is not inherently malicious or anti-privacy. Of course, the government wants whatever powers necessary to prevent, assess, and shut down cybersecurity threats, but the bill, as it is written, is an unambiguous threat to privacy. The bill only grants powers to share data when a cyber threat is imminent. It defines a cyber threat as either efforts to degrade, disrupt, or destroy such system network or theft or misappropriation of private government information, intellectual property, or personally identifiable information. This definition would make any instance of cybercrime an opportunity to collect and disseminate data. And if the NSA's track record is any indication, which, come on, it is, This would make anyone even remotely connected to an instance of cybercrime vulnerable to government and corporate data siphoning. 
One troubling aspect comes from the lack of limitations on how corporations can use the data they receive. CISPA encourages companies to share data with personal identifying information with government agencies and with other companies if it relates to a threat. The bill gives companies that are sharing information immunity as long as they, quote, act in good faith. No civil or criminal cause of action shall lie or be maintained in federal or state court against a protected entity, a self-professed entity, cybersecurity provider, or an officer, employee, or agent of protected entity, self-protected entity, entity, or cybersecurity provider acting in good faith. What is good faith exactly? <laughs> the bill defines it by its opposite, a lack of good faith, which includes any act or omission taken with intent to injure, defraud, or otherwise endanger any individual, government, entity, private entity, or utility. This sort of language lacks the specificity required to go after companies that abuse their newly bloomed access to data. Once that information is shared, federal government agencies are limited in the ways they can use the data with very vague language. However, the companies on the receiving end are not explicitly barred from repurposing this data. As the ACLU pointed out, this could be fixed by amending the bill to circumscribe repurposing. That no such amendment was added before the bill hit the floor for the third time is a disturbing indication that this sort of personal information protection is not a priority. President Obama promised to veto H.R. 624. That doesn't mean he's opposed to new cybersecurity laws. In the wake of the Sony hack, the White House is keen to introduce legislation to make it easier for private entities and companies to share information about cyber threats with government agencies. That's why Obama announced a legislative proposal about cybersecurity this week that covers much of the same ground as CISPA. There are key differences. The White House proposal insists that companies remove personal identification data from data before they share it with government agencies a move designed to protect the privacy of the people whose data is part of the perceived threat. That's a good thing, but it's also likely to become a point of contention with CISPA supporters, who could argue that eliminating a personal identifier would be too difficult to do while racing the clock against a security threat. It's probably not a coincidence that the president announced his proposal on the heels of the new CISPA legislation. It could be a way to divert support from the more contentious CISPA. You can read the full text of the bill, H.R. 234 below, which you really can't. You've actually got to go to the Gizmodo link and then get to it from there. But that's going to go in the chat. I got it. Okay. So it's the same story as every week. The <laughs> government wants to know absolutely everything you're doing. And you have no right to privacy. And we'll, I'll promise to veto this bill. But, by the way, I'm sneaking another one in there that's just fucking like it. But I kept my word. <laughs> yeah. It's, I've got to admit, it, it feels like we're telling the same story. Especially when I do manage to find a story about you know the stupid crap that they're doing with those horrible stingrays then it really feels like it's the same story literally over and over again yeah. went to court asked for information they said no 
Oh, FDA says I should whisper every week. <laughs> oh, you're not the first person on the face of the planet that found my voice annoying. Just saying. <laughs> I could add you to the list. <laughs> um, yeah. Could good low inflation become bad deflation? Uh, yeah. Let's just say, yeah. Gentle inflation is a spur to spend. Because if you've got the money and you're not feeling gloomy, then you will spend today. Because tomorrow, prices might be a bit higher. It's also a spur to borrow for investment. In a home, if you're in a household. Or in a productive kit, if you are a business because you think your earnings will rise in line with inflation, and then the burden of your debt will diminish with passing years. So moderate inflation tends to be associated with a steady growth of in national income of the sort that should make us sustainably richer, but it doesn't. This is why the government has set a target for the Bank of England of setting monetary conditions through changes to the interest rate for lending two banks and via quantitative easing, which is also bullshit, to keep inflation at 2% with a 1 percentage point margin of error on either side of 2%. So with the CPI inflation today announced at 0.5 for December, the joint lowest since records began in 1989, the Bank of England has failed. And for the first time ever, it has failed because inflation is too low. It missed the target on the upside well over 30 times after 2007. That failure is arguably good news, at least in the short term. That is because what has been driving inflation lower has been a 10.5% fall in motor fuels over the last year and a 1.9% fall in food prices. I'm not seeing that here, but if you're seeing that there, fucking yay. Are you, are you seeing that, Barry? Uh, in, only in premium bronze. Uh, which I don't tend to be buying. Uh. Okay, because our prices are just going up. up. Yeah. And since we have to buy food and fuel, these reductions increase our spending power. They make our money go further. They're equivalent of a lovely hefty tax cut of the kind the Chancellor would love to give us but can't afford. Bullshit. (laughs) It is also worth noting, pointing out that food and fuel prices are set to a great extent by global supply and demand and cannot be influenced more than a bit by how cheap or how expensive the Bank of England tries to make the pound. But that doesn't mean falling prices can be blithely ignored. There are fears that an epidemic of falling prices or Japanese-style deflation could become long-lasting and intractable in the Eurozone. And right now in the UK, are likely to ship in disinflation or downward pressure on prices from the Eurozone because the European Central Bank determination to make money as cheap as possible means the pound will go much further when buying goods and services priced in euros. The point is that annual inflation of 0.5% is not much of a buffer against deflation. And we've already seen three consecutive months in the UK of deflation, in clothing and footwear, and almost no inflation in furniture. Um, So this guy goes to talk to someone from the bank of the governor of the Bank of England. I've just interviewed the governor of the Bank of England. Mr. Carney says he expects inflation to fall further as petrol prices are reduced to catch up with the tumbling oil price. 
but his current assessment is that reduced food and energy prices are an economic stimulus because, as I mentioned earlier, they boost our spending power. He said conditions in the Eurozone were more deflationatory than here, citing much higher unemployment rate and stagnant wages. That said, Mr. Carney said, was not impossible that the falls in energy and food prices could affect other sectors, such as that growth-killing deflation could become a more clear and present danger. The bank had the tools to deal with that risk, he said, to nudge inflation back towards the 2% target. Excess evasive action, if needed, would be by keeping interest rates at these record low levels for a bit longer, he said, rather than engaging in more money creation through quantitative easing. He wanted to stress that the bank still expects to normalize interest rates or raise them gently within the foreseeable future. All of this is shit. The more you fuck with the markets, the more you play with them, the more you try to tweak it here, tweak it there. It's great for the rich people. It sucks for the poor. Yep. Because it took all the money from the middle class and it made all those people poor. It made the very, very rich, very, very rich. I don't have a problem with the very, very rich being very, very rich. There's actually an economic point where being rich means you're just going to make a shit ton more money. Okay. And sometimes that money will make its way out into the world, but most times it doesn't. Because let's face it, you know, how many pairs of pants can a rich guy buy? Really? And how many cars can you drive? How many pairs of shoes can you have? Because at the end of the day, they're all allegedly people. Well, and I, um, I have a, I have a problem with understanding the entire concept of inflation. Okay, if a gallon of milk is worth a dollar seventy-five, it's worth a fucking dollar seventy-five. It's not worth two seventy-five. It's not worth three seventy-five. You know, I mean, if you wanted your currency backed by something, say petrodollars gold that might mean something now that you're looking at what saudi arabia is doing when they're saying screw it we don't care if oil reaches 20 dollars a barrel that's going to be really bad it's almost like in some ways the more you look at this the more it just seems like everything's falling in line for pretty much the bottom to fall out on everything everywhere I really thought a few months ago when Janet Yellen, oh, that's an ugly woman. I really thought when she said, we're done with quantitative easing, I thought the bottom was going to kind of drop out then, but that didn't happen. She stopped talking about quantitative easing, but then Japan started doing it again. I mean, Japan had money that deflated to a scary amount, which is really in a way a lot worse than hyperinflation. Oh, it's great for us, but the global economy tanks. I don't know. It um it seems like you want to get back to a system of money that's kind of backed by something. Because all this paper money, all the zeros and ones on computers is nothing. So we're either going to have to have a really serious talk about money as a society because it's just going to keep whittling away at the poor people until there's nothing and there's only going to be really rich people and then people who eat mud pies 
or we're going to have to figure something out. I'm hopeful that we figure something out because every year more and more jobs get automated. I used to have a friend who worked at McDonald's, has a couple kids, right? And all he did all day for 12 hours was he cooked burgers. His job is gone. There's a machine now that does his job, fries burgers in 33 seconds on both sides. His job gone. Boom. There is nothing else for him. That's somebody else who's getting, well, I mean, even working there, he wasn't doing so well. They don't really make a lot of money. So even working there, he was still getting what they call, you know, getting benefits, which aren't really benefits. The governments collude with big business to steal our money and then leave us with nothing. But what they don't realize is they're taking money away from middle class people and then leaving them with nothing. And then the only people it's left to take from are the rich. And I'm sure you've noticed all the proposals to start taxing the hell out of them. I have. Mm-hmm. So maybe the solution, which I doubt we'll ever get to, will be to end the fucking Federal Reserve, which I doubt will happen in my lifetime. But maybe we should stop fucking around with fiat money. It's nothing. It's imaginary. It's a joke. It doesn't mean anything. And what gold used to buy you in the 1800s, that same amount of gold will still buy you the same thing. A handmade outfit. A lovely meal. All of that gold still goes that far. But fiat money has dropped in value that much. Because we just keep making more of it. And the rich people get richer and richer and richer. And the poor people get nothing. That's how the fiat currency scheme seems to go. It just kind of needs to stop because there's no way to dig yourself out of a hole. Which is why the government shouldn't really be involved in the monetary process at all. I don't know. Anybody else have any thoughts? Or am I the only one who thinks about money like this? Because I really like money. I like finance. I find it... I told you, I thought it was all fucked up to start with, so... (laughs) Well, the one comment I'd make is at least the Bank of England is dealing with it a bit more sensibly than some of the other banks. Some of the other uh, national banks. You know, that's in... Yeah, their plan for putting inflation back up to 2%, that's because they'll get rid of some of the extra money they put in. Yeah. Simple. But none of the other banks talk about that. They still want to keep throwing more money in. You, You can't... At some point, you can't... You've printed enough. It's time to stop. Take some of it back. Throw it. I have an idea. There was a story a few years ago. The Onion did it. It might actually be a fucking solution. There's this thing called the money hole. People go and throw money into the money hole and watch it burn. Maybe we could do that with some of our excess currency. And then what was left might actually be fucking worth something. Well, I like that story we did with a place that's using it and and shredding it up and using it for insulation. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, nothing was nicer than reading about all of these power plants taking the money and using it and burning it. I'm like, oh, that's really great. So we're printing money literally to burn it. It's awesome. Um, which we aren't. I mean, that's just the old bills, but still. The I do paper, think it's... The paper it's printed on is worth more than the currency denomination on the damn bill. It's been like that for a while. And now I think we're going to do Jeannie's favorite story. <laughs> <laughs> Montgomery County parents accused of neglect for letting their kids walk freely. Silver Springs, Maryland. A Montgomery County couple says it's surreal that they're being investigated for child neglect for letting their kids roam freely. In many ways, the Matisse family is very traditional. They dinner together every night. Their kids have fixed bedtimes, do chores, and have limits on their sweets and screen time. But the parents are under investigation because they let their kids walk around the neighborhood together unaccompanied by an adult. The the Mativas say the investigation is an invasion of their privacy and infringes on their rights as parents. I grew up in New York City in the 70s. Nobody hesitated to let their kids walk around. The only thing that's changed between then and now is our fear, said the mother, Danielle Mativ. Ten-year-old Rafi and six-year-old Dovi Mativ are allowed by their parents to walk around their Silver Springs neighborhood together, but unaccompanied by an adult. They're very proud of their independence. They understand that they need to hold hands when they cross the street. They need to look both ways, make sure the light is with them, Danielle said. But during recent walks from two local playgrounds, one two blocks from the home, the other a mile, separate, separate callers alerted police and child protective services. They came and they interviewed the kids at school without our permission and knowledge. And when they were talking to them, they were painting a picture of a world that is very scary, said the children's father, Sasha Mativ. Danielle and Sasha Mativ now say their parenting style is under assault. Police and Child Protective Services have come to their home and questioned their children at their elementary school. They are asking my son, Rafi, what he would do if he was grabbed by a stranger, telling them, you know, there are creeps out there that are just waiting to grab children if they're walking by themselves, Sasha said. Child Protective Services could not address the specific case, but did point to a Maryland law which defines child neglect as a failure to provide proper care and supervision of a child. This week, a CPS worker came to the Mativ's home with a safety plan. When I said I couldn't sign the legal paperwork before our attorney looked at it, she said, if you don't sign it, we will take your kids right away, and she called the police, Sasha said. State law prohibits children under the age of eight from being unattended in a dwelling or car, but makes no reference to the outdoors. A person must be at least 13 years old to supervise a child under 8. Fucking ridiculous. Okay. I agree. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> you know what? If this was a law here, they'd have taken all my fucking kids away from me. All of them. My kids, the, the big thing was when they turned 8. Mm-hmm. They were old enough to ride their bicycles from my house to my mother's house. All right. Without a 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah, but, but you... Children were not in any danger. I mean, you know what? There are perverts on the street. Yes, there are. Castrate the motherfuckers and get it done with. But you know what? There have always been 
perverts on the street. You cannot raise a fucking child to be in fear of being outside alone. It is absolutely asinine, ignorant, and ridiculous. And this would not have fucking happened had these fucking people lived in a gated community and had the money to back it up. Oh, no, that doesn't apply to our children because we have the money. Fuck that. It's stupid. You know, there's there's a certain point where you have to ask yourself. I try not to do stories about, like, terrorism and really violent shit. I try to do stories about the government butting in where it doesn't belong. Because I think it makes a point. And there comes a point where you have to ask yourself, when have we reached as a society, when have we reached fear saturation? When is it at the point that we're scared of fucking everything? We're scared to look out the window. Children as blindly following sheep, Jan. That's what it comes down to. They, They want you to instill all of this fear in your children and raise them like that their entire life so when they're an adult... They are still in fear of fucking everything, and they know somebody else is going to be there to protect them from it. That's what this is. It's called infantilization. And to a degree, it happened to us as a society when we moved away from our families and our neighborhoods and a rural living existence. Okay, When people started moving to the cities and had no support system... And shit would go bad and the government started support services and people really took advantage of them and then people really leaned on them and then people really needed them. Um, A certain side effect of all of that is that after a while, the government kind of wants that. It kind of wants you dependent on them for everything. It wants to tell you what to think and how to feel and what to wear and how to be safe. And it wants to wrap you up in bubble wrap and let you eat gruel and drink water by the teaspoonful. It it really is a bland, colorful, ugly existence. And absolute power leads to this when you let them control how you feel when you watch the news and you get scared when you don't when you're scared enough that you don't know your neighbors to say hi to never mind their name when we don't talk to each other when all you want to do is go home and be left alone because you think you might be safe there. We have a problem. And it's because of the government, their partnership with the media, the growing dependence on the government. There are ways to handle these things that go wrong in our lives. And if we have friends and family, they can help us out when things go bad. But if you never talk to anyone and things go bad, you've got no one to depend on but the government. And they would like to keep it that way. That is in their best interests. So they feed the fear machine. There are children out there, Jan, that are being burned with cigarettes and starved 
and actually abused. And you know what the problem is? The problem is, is these motherfuckers hide and they do this behind closed doors and nobody sees these children outside, but that's okay because nobody else is bothered by it. But for fuck's sake, you want to raise your children to go out in the world and be self-assured and be strong and CPS is knocking on your door? Oh, we're just doing our job? No, no, that is not your job. Your job is to actually go out and investigate and find these poor kids that are actually being abused. Not not sitting on your ass in some fucking office and waiting for the nib-nosed lady down the street to call and say, Oh my God, these children are outside walking down the street and they have no supervision because you're worried about them walking in your fucking flowers. And that's what they do. That's what it is. It's not that they're worried about these kids. They weren't worried about the fucking kids. They were worried about what those kids were going to do to their shit. Uh, okay. I told you. I told you. This <laughs> story pissed me off. I, I know. But here's the thing. You can make a decision. You can take that news. You can take the TV. You can kill it. You can turn it off. You can refuse to watch it. You don't have to let them make fear part of your life. You don't have to do it. You don't have to succumb to it. You don't have to wallow in it. You don't have to lie in it. You don't have to think about it. It doesn't have to be a part of your life. You can free yourself from the crap that's on mainstream network news or in the newspaper. Because it's all just there to scare you into obeying. Blindly obeying. Don't do that. Think for yourself. You can do that. You're smart enough to. You know you are. I know you are. We look at all these stories, and a lot of these we go, the government's just interfering too much. Well, we allow them to. We look at these stories, and we go, it's the nanny state. Well, we help that begin. We can help end it. We can make all this go away. Don't let fear rule you. You don't have to. At all. And I guess maybe that's the message for my 100th episode. Don't let fear rule you. You don't have to. There's a better way to live and you know it. And I think that's it. Advert. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Kevin, for giving me a home here. Thank you, Jeannie, and thank you, Barry, for staying here with me and doing this every week with me and going forth with this and everything. It means a lot to me. Um, I hope we have a hundred more episodes easy.
it's great working with you. I love you guys, and I love all of you that listen to me. Thank you. Be strong. No fear. Good night.